Amen. Amen. Well, hey, uh, good morning. Thank you all for just being here this morning. Hey, we're going to be going back into our sermon series titled Practical Theology, in which we're going to study the book of Romans. But before we do that, you guys may be seated, and let's go ahead and just, uh, just open with a word of prayer again. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much, God. God, I do pray that last sentence out there, God, the last verse, God, that we just be filled again, God, with you, Father. God, I pray that we just overflow with you and your love today, God. We thank you so much. Uh, it's just in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, it's, it's, it's so great just to see everyone. It's excited to be back up here. Uh, it's excited. I, I'm super excited to be back in the book of Romans. As much as I love Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's messages, I love just going through the book of the Bible, or go through a book of the Bible, and it's been nine weeks. It's been nine weeks since we studied Romans, and so we're back in it today, uh, verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. But uh, many believe that, w- that we are going to start a new section of Romans. Many believe that uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11 is a totally different section of, of Romans. It's the middle section. It's a, it, a lot of people, a lot of churches don't preach Romans 9 through 11. They think that it's like a sidebar. Or, you know, I don't know any pastors who go out to left field while they're preaching besides all, all of them. And so many, fi- thank you. Yeah, there we go. It's a little bit there. I was hoping that would get something. Uh, we see in Romans 9 through 11, it's Paul's like sidebar. And it's, you know, many people believe that. I don't think that Pastor Darren doesn't believe that. We believe that it just enhances what Paul's trying to say in verses, in chapters 1 through 8. And so uh, it, it's tough. And so we're going to dive into it. I'm going to make it as practical as I can, if I even understand it. Uh, but we're going to talk about God's election today. And so Paul had argued at the end of chapter 8 of Romans that the believer is secure in Jesus Christ, and that God's election would stand. And he says that in uh, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, but someone may say, well, what about the Jews? Weren't they special? The Jewish people, Israel, weren't they special? And yet you, you now say that God set aside some of them, and God is building his church through those people. Did God's word fail at some point? In other words, the very character of God was being questioned when Paul was talking about in, in Romans 8, uh, verses 28 through 30. He says that if God was not faithful to the Jews, how— how do we know that he's going to be faithful to us? How do we know he's going to be faithful to his church? So we see, we'll see here in Romans 9 that Paul's going to defend the very character of God. And as he does that, he's going to magnify some attributes of God. And so we're going to see first that in the verses that we're going to tackle today, we're going to see that his righteousness is, or his faithfulness is going to be talked about. In 14 through 18, we're going to see God's justice. And we're going to see his righteousness. And then lastly, uh, verses 30 through 30, we're going to see God's grace. But I'm only covering 13 verses today. But if you remember, in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul ends on a very cheerful note, on a very exciting note, right? He says, uh, if we go to Romans 8, 38 through 39, he writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ 
Jesus our Lord. That's super exciting. That ought to bring you a lot of joy. But then Paul gets to chapter 9, and he didn't have chapters back then, but we added them, and it shifts. It's a dramatic shift from being excited and encouraging to Paul's being sorrowful. And that's our first section of scripture this morning. Uh, It goes from joy to being sorrowful in verses 1 through 3. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 2. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see, Paul begins by saying that he's not lying. And that might be a little strange. He's going to say a couple strange things today. But that might be a little strange to you, because why would Paul say he's a not lying. We don't know Paul as being a liar, but the reason why he says that, he says, you know what? Look, like, look at me. Pay attention. God has placed something on my heart for you, and I want you to pay attention. So it'd be kind of like, I hope you guys don't think I'm a liar. It's kind of like me saying, I'm not a liar. Listen to what God's placed on my heart. And so he's saying that this is serious, so let's pay attention. He first says that he has great sorrow, and he has constant anguish in his heart. Now, we wouldn't kind of think, like, that's not too strange. I'm sure many of us have anguish in our heart. We feel sorrowful, especially for those uh, that were affected by the flooding here on Monday and even last night or tonight. That might happen. But we see that Paul's in anguish because of his people, his kinsmen, the Jewish people. They They didn't know who God was. They didn't know that Jesus was their Messiah, Paul knows that when they rejected Jesus, they actually reject God at the same time. And so uh, Paul also knows that those who reject Jesus also reject all the benefits, all the promises in which God has given the Israel people, the Jewish people, including a home in heaven with God. So Paul has great sorrow over this reality of his kinsmen. And then Paul says a little strange statement, but it's very strong. Uh, in verse 3, let's read it. It says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's a little strange. But do you see what Paul's saying here? Because this is kind of wild that he says that. He says he would rather give up his blessing. He'd rather give up and become accursed. He'd rather go to hell so that one person may know Jesus. He, he says, I'd rather be accursed so that my kinsmen, or for the sake of my kinsmen who are in Christ, or, or who are in the flesh so that they may be in Christ. But is that not the heart of, of Jesus? Is that not the heart of Christ right there? You see, the Father, or Jesus was cut off from the Father. He, he was willing to do that. He's willing to be cut off from the Father up on that cross for you and I. And we see that that Paul is saying that this is the level to which he would go so that people may know, so that his Jewish friends and family would know who Jesus is. He says, I'm in anguish over it. And we see that this also happened in Exodus 32. If you remember Exodus 32, Moses had just taken the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he goes up to the mountain and he talks to God and he, you know, he has this great conversation with God. His face is all shiny as he comes back down. And what does he see? He sees, um, he, he sees his, his, 
Aaron building a golden calf, building a false idol. And that enrages Moses. So what does Moses do? He goes for another hike up that mountain. And he says, God, God, blot me out of your book if that means that, my, that the Israelites would know you so that they may be spared, so that they may be forgiven. And how does God respond? God responds by saying, uh, no. You see, Moses wasn't the Christ. Moses, uh, although he had the heart of, of, of Jesus, the heart of Christ, he was not the Christ. He's incapable of the work of, of, of Jesus. So God is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, God's unwilling for anyone but his son to bear that cost. See, Moses was great. Jesus was perfect. So in that moment, God points, he points to the Savior, the need for a Savior, and the cost that he's going to pay. And no one is worthy of that besides Jesus. So Paul knows what it is to know Christ, and he knows uh, of his righteousness. He knows the consequences of the rejection of the Messiah, and so Paul says that he'd rather be cut off if that means that his, his family, his brothers and sisters in, in, as Jewish people would know their Messiah. That brings us to our first point this morning. Do you have a broken heart for the lost? Do you have a broken heart for those who don't know Jesus? You see, we need to have a heart for the lost, for those who don't know who Jesus is. And it, it ought to break our heart when we realize that, that our, even our family or our friends don't know who Jesus is. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, this scripture, is, it's tough. It's tough. I, I don't know if I am nearly as good as Paul. I know I definitely am not, but I don't know if I can say a statement like that. I don't know if I can say, God, I would rather be a curse if that means that so-and-so can make it to heaven. I don't know if I'm there yet. Maybe you're there. Maybe you can pray for me. That'd be great. But I do pray pretty consistently. I ask God, God, break my heart for those who don't know you. Break my heart for what breaks your heart, God. You know, I always hear people that say, oh, I'm so willing to give up an organ or, you know, kidney, liver, pancreas, whatever, right? Their heart even. I'm just kidding. They don't do that. But... They're so willing to do that, and that's so great. But are we willing to, get to become accursed? Are we willing to give up the greatest benefit that there is, a spot in heaven, so that our brothers and sisters may be saved? So our hearts ought to be broken for the lost. Uh, last year, I had to write a thesis paper to get my master's degree. So I wrote on how to minister to the wealthy, and one of the thing, one of my major points was I talked about Jesus' compassion for the lost. And it's this word that's going to be up on the screen called splanizama. Now, that's probably not the right way to say it. But splanizama is to be gravely moved, basically, to be gravely moved to the point that it, it brings you to action. It's not just saying, oh, man, I feel so bad for him. No, it's being so moved that you want to do something for that person. And it comes from Matthew 9, 36, in which it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had, he had compassion. He had splanizama for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
are you moved with that same type of splendidzama, the same level of compassion for those who don't know who Jesus is? If you're not, like, may I encourage you just to pray. Pray for that this week. Pray that God breaks your heart for what breaks his. Pray that God breaks your heart for the lost. And so we see, verses 1 through 3, it's all about Paul's sorrow for his people. Secondly, we're going to see Israel's blessings and their boundaries in verses 4 through 7. And he begins to tell us a little bit about who the Israelites were. So let's go ahead and read that, verses 4 through 7. It says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God is failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So we continue to see here Paul's deep desire to see the Israelites come to Jesus. After all, if you remember, Paul, before he became Paul, he was Saul, and he was actually one to persecute the Jewish people, or the, those who, who professed that Jesus was the Messiah. So he would persecute them, um, and so uh, until his, his uh, conversion. And we see that the Jewish people, they are special after all. They're special people. They're the ones who descended from Abraham, which we're going to talk about today and uh, finish up next week. The Israelites are the one that God made covenants with. They're the ones who God first gave his law to. They're the ones who were given special blessings. They were given the, the temple. They're the ones in which God delivered many promises. Through them, they saw great ancestors of our faith, and they saw even Jesus through their line. They saw the Messiah come. All these blessings were given to them and them only and no other nation. They're indeed special people. They're blessed beyond all measure. But there was boundaries. They cannot simply do whatever they wanted and ignore what God wanted them to do and expect everything to be okay. When the Messiah came, what, what happened? What did they do? They rejected him right? They rejected the Messiah. Israel rejected him, and they crucified him, and in doing so, they rejected God and his Messiah, and they expected everything to be okay with it, but that's not how God works. So in verse 6, Paul questions if the word of God is felled. So God made these promises concerning Israel, yet Israel had rejected those promises, their own Messiah. They rejected God so, Paul says, have the promises of God toward his people failed? Has the word of God actually failed? Well, of course the answer is no. The word of God has not failed because God is faithful no matter what men may do with his word. And so Paul points out in verse 7 that not all of Abraham's descendants are children of him just because they came from him. And that's kind of confusing. But what Paul is trying to say here is that just because somebody is Jewish doesn't really mean that they are one of God's chosen people. As we, we read, and, or as we have read, and as we're going to read, and as you're going to figure out next week as well, there's a difference between being a natural seed of Abraham and a spiritual seed of Abraham. A natural seed is being a natural 
descendant of Abraham. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. And then we also have a spiritual seed. How do you become a spiritual seed? You accept Jesus as the Messiah. And you become a spiritual seed of Abraham. And you are, you are allowed to have the blessing that Abraham was given by God. And so as we went over, the people of Israel had experienced tremendous blessings. And there's more to come. However, the true blessings are reserved for those who are truly Israel, those who are truly Christians, those who truly know God as, or that know Jesus as the Messiah. And as we see in verse 5, it says that Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul would love to see his people come to Jesus, but he also knows that many people have rejected him. However, God does have people who are his own. He still has children among the Israelites, which brings us to our final section, our final section of our scripture today. This is God's promises and purpose. But before we go to verses 8, let's look at verse 7 here. It says, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul's pointing out that just because, you, you know, like I was saying earlier, that just because you're a child of Abraham, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're a child of the promise. And so we're going to see that in verse 8 through 9. Let's read it. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul here, he's referring to Genesis 18 verse 10. Here where God tells Abraham and his wife Sarah, he says this. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have, or Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening to the tent door behind him. And if you remember correctly, Sarah does what? She laughs, right? She laughs straight at God and then she lies. No, I didn't laugh. And God's like, no, I heard you, you know. Uh, because it was a miracle. This is a total miracle at this point, because Sarah's past her point of childbirth, and I would say Abraham is as well, or Sarah and Abram at that point, Uh, but it was a promise by God. It involved his own supernatural activity, and this is what the story is all about. It's about his promise is based on whatever he does, not what we do. If you remember, Abraham also had another son uh, named Ishmael. And it's about 13 years before uh, Isaac was born, and he was the firstborn of Abraham. And if you remember the story correctly, or incorrectly as I'm about to share, Sarah basically tells Abraham, do you not remember what God said? He said that you're going to have a son, we can't have a son, so I want you to take Hagar, my, my slave, and have a son with, with her. So Abraham says, okay, I'll do it. And he, they have a child named Ishmael. And then that's in Genesis 16. Then you go to Genesis 17. And he takes uh, Ishmael before the Lord and says, Lord, here's, here's my son. Will you do something through him? And what does God say? God says, no, I will not. This is not the one I had promised you, right? Remember, the Lord has, has made this blessing, this promise through Sarah, and Abraham, not Hagar and Abraham. And so when Abraham and Sarah decided to put it in their own hands rather than God, God said, no, not this way. And I think that's a very important piece of scripture here. And I find a lot of people who get the idea 
that they think that, that God should do something just because they're praying for it or just because they want it to happen, right? They ask him to do it, and because they ask him to do it, they think that that's what should happen, right? God has to do it. Well, when they do that, they misread so much of the Bible. They misread the promises about prayer and think that if they, get the, if they just get this idea and they pray about it, God has to do it. But what this teaches us very plainly is that God is committed to doing only what he wants to do, not what we want to do. I, I, I just had this conversation with the youth group last week. We were talking about God's will for our lives. And um, we ought to... Like, like when we're trying to discern that, we ought to pray about it. We ought to ask God, God, give us clarity on this and align our hearts with his. And so um, I was sharing this story about when I first uh, learned about the open position here at Rock Harbor, I was praying about it. And I, I remember applying, and then I, I was talking to uh, Pastor Randy, and we were just chatting, and, and you know, I told him, I was like, you know, this would be a great, like it's great weather, my wife would love to move to the coast, and uh, you know, we got a beautiful view. It's a beautiful church. I love how, how, how much life is here at this church. And I was super excited. And I remember telling him, I was like, well, you know, if this works out, I'm going to be ecstatic. And I am, if you haven't noticed. I love this place. But I told him in that moment, I was like, Randy, if it doesn't work out, man, I need you to pray that, it, that God aligns my heart with his will. Align my heart with his heart. I, I would have been disappointed. I would have been maybe a little devastated a little bit that, I, that, uh, that it wasn't God's timing. But I was praying that God would align my heart according to his will. And that's something I think we need to uh, do more often is align our hearts with God's wills. God is going to do what God's going to do according to his will. We cannot force God's will. It's not up to us. It's up to him. And so we need to pray about that. And so Paul, uh, he's going to continue on talking about the descendants of Abraham now in verses 10 through 12. Uh, he's going to talk about Abraham's promised son, Isaac, and his offspring. So let's read it. Verse 10. It says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, and this was in, verse, in Genesis 25, she was told the older will serve the younger. And so we see that Rebekah, who is Abraham's son's Isaac, it's, it's his wife, she'll go on to have twin boys. And now, uh, in verse 12, when he says, the older shall serve the younger, remember that this is another remarkable statement. Because by all, all, all tradition and, and for rights sake, the older always gets all the rights. He gets all the blessings. But for the second time in this genealogy, we see that the younger is the one who's going to receive it. And the older is going to serve the younger. Paul tells Jacob, or it tells us that Jacob will reign over Esau so that God's promise may stand. Now, we may be tempted to think that God chose Jacob over Esau uh, because God knew that Jacob would turn out to be this mighty person for him. And uh, well, if you pay attention to verses 10 through 12, we'll see that Paul actually gave clarity as to the reason why God chose him over Esau. 
Paul says that God chose Jacob before they were born and had done neither good nor bad. Why? Because Paul says that in order for God's purpose to continue, that purpose of election might continue. So Paul says here that it's not because of what they can do or what they're going to do. It's because it's a calling of God. And listen, church, the idea of God choosing Jacob over Esau because of, because maybe, you know, a lot of people think that God looked into the future. He has a book, let's just say he has a book written out and it has all the future, right? And he looked and he saw Jacob as being a better than, than Esau. Many people believe that that's why he chose Jacob. Well, that's not true. That's not how the Bible says, not what it says here in Romans either. But let's just, uh, you know, let's just imagine that that's it. Because we see on one hand, we see Esau. He's this mighty warrior, this stud, right? So <laughs> he, he, it's his stud. But then you see East, uh, Jacob, and I don't have a great word for this, but he's scrappy. He's a little scrawny. He's not the warrior type, right? Why in the world would God not choose this m- mighty warrior, but he would rather choose this scrappy kid? Well, we know God doesn't look at, at what man looks at. Before these twins were even born, their mother Rebecca was told by God that Esau would serve Jacob. And in break of Jewish custom, the younger son shall receive that blessing of God because it was a promise by God. It was God's will for his life. And Paul doubled, he, he doubles down on this in verse 13. As he quotes Malachi 1, 2, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, he says in verse 13, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, when you first read that, if you don't know the context, you, know, you may think, oh, how does God hate someone? Well, that's not what it says. God doesn't hate Jacob or Esau, kind of like how we would say we hate somebody or hate something, right? We're not giving them attitude. We're not you know, showing disrespect towards them. That's not what's meant here. Because if you remember in Luke 14, Jesus says that in order for you to follow me, or if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother or wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Clearly, Jesus isn't saying you have to hate your mother and father, your wife, your, your spouse, your kids, your siblings. Uh, you don't have to hate yourself. That's not what he means. What he means is that there needs to be a superiority to God. In, in your life. God has to take, take number one rank in your life over everything else. You know, like one thing I love about Kelsey is that we always say, you know, we say, oh, you're my favorite. Well, behind Jesus. Or, you know, instead of saying, like, Kelsey, yeah, you're number one. I say, Kelsey, yeah, you're number two. You know? <laughs> because Jesus needs to rank above us. And I think she started that, and I'll, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> the same goes here. For God and Esau. He didn't hate him according to, you know, kind of how we think of hate. He, in fact, he actually blesses Esau. He makes him into a great nation as well. He gave him the promises that, which were fulfilled to the letter. God didn't hate Esau in the usual sense. What this is implying is that God had set his heart on Jacob to bring him to redemption. And all of Jacob's followers would reflect that. So Paul has argued already that they were not all necessarily saved just because they came from that lineage, just because they were born into Jacob. And as I mentioned earlier, 
uh, this section of Romans 9 through 11, it's all about uh, election. And what Paul's teaching us here is that God has a sovereign, an overarching elective principle that he carries out on his terms, not ours, which leads us to our takeaway this morning. And here's the terms. Salvation is never based on natural descent, nor on human merit. What you are by nature does not enter into the picture of whether or not you are saved. You know, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, especially growing up, that if you ask them if they're religious, they'll say, oh yeah, I'm religious, you know, I go to church on Christmas, or I used to grow, you know, go to the Catholic church with my grandma growing up, and, and, and or they say they drove us winners or whatever, and then you ask them, oh cool, like what church do you go to? They're like, oh man, I go to blah, blah, blah church, you know? And then Pastor Mike, you know, I love when he preaches. How's he doing? You're like, oh, he passed away like six years ago, right? And, you know, they think that just because they went to church or just because their family is Christian that they're Christian. Well, that's not how it works. It's not how that works at all, right? Well, like, listen, your family may be Christian. You're, you're, uh, you, you may think just because your grandma prayed over you for many years or that you were a Christian 20 years ago and you haven't done anything about it since. That doesn't make you a Christian, you, you may go to all of our Bible studies, which you can find out at rockharborcf.com slash Bible studies, or there's a pamphlet in the back. You may go to any of those, right? But that doesn't make you a Christian. These special things that you're born into, that doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian has nothing to do with our natural descent. It's all about accepting Jesus into our hearts. So secondly, you cannot be a Christian on your merit alone. Just because you give 10% to church, just because you show up to church every Sunday, or you help out when needed, that doesn't make you a Christian. You know, like one of the things I love, maybe I shouldn't say that, one of the things that I liked seeing after the flood happened here on Monday was, you know, I'm scrolling Facebook on the, the Morbay, you know, Facebook group, and I'm refreshing it, and what I'm seeing is people that are offering up their Airbnbs, they're offering up, you know, if you need food, I got some for you. If you need shelter for the night, I got you. You know, I love seeing the community come together and rally with one another, and that's great. And we're called to do that, but that doesn't make us a Christian because we do something great. You can be an atheist and still want to give your shirt off your back for, for somebody who needs it. So being a Christian has nothing to do with our own merit either. It's all about giving our lives to Christ and accepting him as our Savior. And so let me and just with the challenge this week. Here's two challenges. The first, to read Romans 9 on, on your own. Even if you want to go further, read Romans 9 through 11 on your own, because it is heavy. You know, a lot of scholars, and I agree, that Romans uh, is just a total, deep theological book. It's hard, it's heavy. And so let's say it's like you're swimming out in the ocean, and then uh, you get to Romans 9 through 11, then it's like that, there's like a drop. Because it is so heavy, it's so deep. You know, like I said, a lot of churches don't even preach Romans 9 through 11, but we believe here at Rock Harbor that we go through every last verse of the Bible. So, so I would encourage you to read through it. And as you read through it, ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. Ask him to help you through it. Because once you understand it a little bit on your own, you can begin to understand it more and more, and you'll come here and be like, 
you know, Pastor Rob, that's not really what it says. And I'll argue with you, and we'll both be wrong somehow. Um, but let the Holy Spirit guide you. So I'd encourage you to do that this week. And, you know, I know a lot of people, they'll text me, uh, you know, throughout the week that I, they know I'm preaching. And they'll ask me, you know, like, Rob, what are you preaching on? So I tell them Romans 9, 1 through 13. And so they want to read over it and pray over it as well. But one of the coolest parts is that they also want to pray for the pastor, whoever's speaking that week. And I, I love that, that I have a few people here that will pray over me as I'm trying to discern what God's trying to put on my heart with the, with the same passage. So maybe that's, you know, that's something you can do as well. So number one, I would encourage you to read Romans 9 this week. The second thing, thank God that you are his. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, then thank God for that. As we cover today, it's not because you were born into a family, into this Christian family. It's not because God knew ahead of time that you'd be a fantastic Christian. It's all because of the grace of God. So thank God this week that he loves you, that he sent his son to die for you up on that cross. And he's called you to salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit and adopt you, do you, as a spiritual seed, as an adopted child of God. So God is calling himself to you this week to be rescued from the slavery of sin. Are you listening? Will you answer that call? Will you come back to him? Will you come to the Heavenly Father this morning? Maybe you're writing on the fact that your family is Christian and you're wondering if that really makes you a Christian. Well, I point blank it doesn't, but we'll talk about that. Or, or, or maybe you've, you, you've fallen off the wagon and it's time for you to come back to God this week. It's time for you to come back. Come to him and let him work through your life this week. Remember, your salvation is not based on your natural descent, nor is it based on your, your own merit, on how good you are. It's based off of accepting Jesus as your personal savior. And so if you need to do that this morning, I would encourage you, to reach out to one of us, and let's do it. Let's live in that promise that we've been given through our forefathers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're just so thankful for you, Father. Thank you for sending your Son to die for us, God, and to save us. God, and I pray over each and every one of us that we can just go out this week, that we can just live that life, God, that we can just live in that promise that you've given us, Father. God, I pray over those who are, are, are maybe struggling with that idea or that they're, they're unsure, God. I pray that they just reach out to, if it's not one of those pastors, God, just allow them to reach out to somebody that they're comfortable with talking to, God, so that we can pray over them. God, we just thank you so much for allowing us just to be here this morning. And it's in your name. Amen.